So we'll be reading from the book of Malachi, starting chapter 1, in verse 6, through to chapter 2, verse 9. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now you, priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Thanks, Erica, and uh, good morning again. It's not really nice to be with you, the faithful ones, the ones who didn't go away on the long weekend. 
Good on you. Hey, uh, let's, let's pray again, and then we will look at this passage together. Lord God, you are so great. You are the great King, and it is such a privilege to be here in your presence and to have you speak to us. Uh, Lord, may our hearts grasp the significance of that, the privilege of that, and we ask, Lord, that you would indeed speak into our lives and hearts now. Grow our love and understanding uh, for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the car park began to fill, and soon the pews did as well. And by the time the service started, it was standing room only at the back. And then the stage was soaked in light as the band began to play the first song, and the voices swelled, and prayers were prayed. And lots of money was given, and the pastor stepped up in a lovely suit, and he preached an inspiring message. And then afterwards, the auditorium buzzed with voices until eventually the people drifted back to their cars and drove home, and they left with smiles on their faces. Little did they know that God had not been in their midst that morning. The presence and the power of God had been absent And he was insulted by their worship service. Down the road, a much smaller group of people had also gathered for their Sunday service. They had struggled to fill the hall. Uh, There were many empty seats as their voices started to sing. Nevertheless, they they sang and and they prayed and they gave money and their pastor stepped up to give a message. And they chatted after the service and they drove home with smiles on their faces. And the great God of heaven and earth was smiling too. He was pleased with his people who had gathered to worship him. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that quite unsettling. Uh, I mean, worshipping God is literally what the church does, isn't it? That's, that's what we do. It's Church 101. We are the people of God and we gather to praise Him. If we're not doing that, what on earth are we doing? But isn't that exactly why it's worth asking, well, is God actually pleased with what we do here at Riverbank? That would be a question worth asking. I mean, our services each week and the songs we sing, and the sermons that are preached and the ministries we run all those people who lead and help in so many different ways, surely, probably, hopefully, what we do actually pleases God, right? Surely God's pleased that you're here this morning. Maybe you're even in a position of leadership here at Riverbank. Well, that kind of seals the deal, right? That's that's kind of a, a proof that you really are Living a life that pleases God. Or is it? Is it possible that if we stepped behind the matrix, we might see things from a different perspective, from God's perspective? Could it be possible that God would be displeased with a vibrant, growing church? Could he be displeased with a gifted and inspiring preacher? Could he be displeased with a faithful person who has attended church for the last 50 years? And never gone away for the long weekend. Could God even be displeased with me? With you? I mean, the question is, how do we know? 
How, how are we going to work that out? How are we going to work out if Riverbank is actually a church that honors God? If I'm actually a Christian who pleases God in the way I live? And, that, and that's where our passage in Malachi comes in. Because uh, we're going to meet some people in this passage today who thought they were ticking all the boxes when it came to worshiping God. Until God came to them and exposed the ugly truth. And it's a warning worth hearing. It's also a passage that helps us become a church that truly does worship God and enjoys His blessing in our lives. So we're going to look at this passage in two sections today. Uh, Section 1 is chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. Uh, We're going to look at what God says about dodgy worship. And then in the second section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, we're going to look at what God says about dodgy leaders. Uh, So dodgy worship and then dodgy leaders. I'd love you to keep your Bible open there because I'm going to be pointing us back to it as we go. Our first point is dodgy worship. Uh, We pick up the action... Chapter 1, verse 6, and God and his people, they're getting into another discussion, another uh, Q&A. Last week, Jack showed us the first Q&A in verses 2 to 5. God's people were doubting, does God really love us? And God reminded them they were his chosen covenant people. And he always had loved them and he always would love them. But now, in verse 6, we're starting to realize maybe the problem's not with God and His love. Maybe the problem's with the people. God steps up to challenge them in verse 6. Read it with me. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. And the people would have been nodding along. Yeah, of course a son would honor his father, especially in Jewish society. Of course a slave would honor his master. The people are nodding, and then God says, Okay, what about me? If I'm the Lord Almighty, your creator, your savior, then shouldn't you show even more honor and respect for me? But have a look there, the opposite's actually happening. You priests are showing contempt. For my name. Oh, whoa, 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 they say. How have we shown contempt for your name, God? God clarifies, you've been offering defiled food on my altar. Oh, they push back again, they keep arguing with God, so God makes it crystal clear in verses 7 and 8. You have defiled me by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Here's here's the heart of the problem. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Well, well, the people knew it was wrong because God had told them many times before. For example, Leviticus 22, it said their sacrifices needed to be without defect or blemish in order to be acceptable. So you don't come to God and bring animals that were blind or injured or sick, and yet that's... That's exactly what they're doing. God says, can't you see how insulting that is to me? How little do you think of me? You're driving along Frankfurt Highway at night, you hit a wallaby, it dies, and you go, oh, that's perfect. I've got to bring an animal to the temple tomorrow. So you just slap your roadkill down on the altar as a sacrifice for your sins. Are you serious? 
Or you go out to your flock of sheep and you know you've got to bring something to God as an offering of thanksgiving and you find the blind one with a broken leg and go, well, that's no use to me, I'll give him that. Verse 8, God says, try doing that when you pay your taxes to the Persian governor. Do you think he's going to accept it? Of course not. But you think God will. It's a pretty bad situation, isn't it? I'm tempted to point my finger at their dodgy worship until I think about myself and how often I also offer God my leftovers, my my second best. Uh, I sit down to read my Bible, but I'm, I'm really too distracted by my phone to get much out of it. Or I finally get to the couch and the evening's nearly gone and I just want to watch TV. And I know it's probably a good time to connect uh, with my wife, Shan, and we could pray together, but I just want to watch TV. Maybe we'll just say a quick prayer in bed before we go to sleep. Or I, I give my money to the, to the church and to mission work, but I make sure I don't really give so much that it would affect my savings or my house or my, my car upgrade. You know, aren't there so many ways that we give God our leftovers? Perhaps we're part of a growth group, but only when it suits us. Or maybe we like to do hospitality with friends, um, but the idea of having that person in need stay at our house for a few days or even weeks, not sure about that. Uh, Or perhaps we arrive at church last minute uh, with no thought or prayer about what we're about to do. And we mumble a few songs with our hands in our pockets and we play on our phones and we, we only talk to the people we like afterwards or maybe, maybe we just bail on the last song. We don't have to talk to anyone. Uh, I read something from a guy called Ian Duguid this week which struck me. He writes this, We diligently prepare ourselves for exams, for dates, for job interviews, for meeting future in-laws or for presentations at work. Yet when it comes to worship, we frequently appear with tired minds and unprepared hearts as if nothing important were scheduled to occur during this time together in church. We take God for granted, assuming that he ought to be delighted with whatever half-hearted odds and ends of worship we bring. End quote. Why is this? Why do we offer God second best? Well, I think it's because we have too high a view of ourselves and too small a view of God. We doubt that the good life is really going to be found in wholehearted commitment to God. I mean, how could it? You know, don't we need to be completely free in order to be happy? Free to do it my way. Free, free to seek the things I want to do. But, but friends, here's the brutal truth. Spending a bit of time with God on Sundays does not atone for the other six days where we do whatever we want and put ourselves first. A bit for me and a bit for God, it doesn't make it okay. It, it actually makes it worse. Because we become those religious hypocrites who keep God on a leash over there in a corner for a rainy day and we just do the bare minimum to appease Him while we just carry on seeking first our kingdoms. And it's, it's kind of sickening 
when you think about it. And that's why God says these words in verse 10. Have a look. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Ouch, that is shocking. God says, if you can't be bothered giving me the honor I deserve, I would rather you didn't even try. Don't bother at all. Don't bother coming to church. Don't bother calling yourself a Christian. You think I need your worship? I don't. I don't need it. Notice the repetition in this passage. He says, God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Almighty. In verse 11, God says, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets in every place. Incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. God is warning his people if they don't bring him the honor he deserves. He'll take the privilege of the temple, of his presence, of his grace, and he'll give it to the nations. Which is exactly what happened when Jesus came, isn't it? Do you remember? He rebuked all those outwardly religious hypocrites who didn't actually love God and love others. And Jesus said his kingdom would go from the Jews to all the nations. And that is us here this morning. Isn't that an incredible privilege that here in Launceston this morning, we are worshipping the great God of Israel. But I don't think this is just a warning for back then. I think it's a warning for us too, a warning against complacency. Friends, God's name will be feared among the nations. You don't have to doubt that. It is happening around the world. You know that in Africa and Asia at the moment, millions are becoming converted and eagerly giving their lives to Christ at the cost of death sometimes. He will receive the glory he deserves. There's only one question, and that is, will we be part of it? Or will we be so in love with the comforts and pleasures of our lives in the West, with building our own little kingdoms and glorifying our own little names, that we will just give God the dregs? Which is pretty sobering, really, because I don't know if there's any of us sitting here this morning who think, yeah, I've given God everything. We all fall short in our worship of God. So look with me at those beautiful words at the start of verse 9. Now, plead with God to be gracious to us. Why does God warn us? Because he wants to draw us back to himself. He knows our sin. That's why he sent us his son Jesus. The perfect worshipper who loved God and served God with all his heart. The perfect lamb without any blemish. And he was sacrificed because of all our blemished half-hearted worship. And instead of God shutting the temple doors, removing his presence from us... He slammed the door on his beloved son instead, on the cross. And now through Christ, because of that sacrifice, we're forgiven. And we 
we can come back to God and we can give him the honor he deserves. We'll always do that imperfectly, I know that. Our worship on this side of heaven will always be tainted by sin. But if we come to God humbly, fully aware of our weakness and our sin, that actually glorifies God the most. We glorify His grace when we do that. We honor the Lamb when we do that. You know, because of Jesus, we don't, we don't have a temple and uh, there's no priest and no altar here today. But God does still call us to make sacrifices to Him. Romans 12 verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we're living sacrifices. We don't worship God by dying on an altar. We worship Him by living lives for Him in everything, by giving Him our best, our full attention, our loudest praise, our precious time, our dearest dollars, by giving to each other, loving and serving each other as an act of worship to God. So, so dodgy worship or true worship? Uh, and we could leave it there, but, but God isn't quite done. He's got one more bone to pick. Because when God looks at the mangy animals being sacrificed on His altar, He realizes that some people are particularly to blame for all of this. Sure, all the people are responsible because they've all been bringing these animals, but it's the priests who are letting them do it. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, God is going to speak directly to the priests, to the religious leaders. That brings us to our second and final point. We've looked at dodgy worship. Now we want to think about dodgy leaders before we finish. Have a look. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. <laughs> it's nice and direct, isn't it? Sorry, God, who are you speaking to? Y you priests, if you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Let me ask you, how much of a problem do you think it would be if the leaders of God's people eh, didn't really love God? Well, God seems to think it would be incredibly dangerous and unacceptable. Did you see the tragic irony there in verse 2? That these are the people who are meant to bless them, bless the people, and instead... They've become a curse to them. They were meant to lead and feed and protect God's people, and they're doing the opposite. And God will not allow it. Have a look in verse 3. He doesn't mince his words. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. So when an animal was sacrificed... Uh, all their internal organs, including the dung, was declared spiritually unclean. It was thrown in the bin. And God is saying, well, you priests, 
are spiritually unclean. And I'm going to remove you from your privileged position in the temple. He says in verse 9, they'll be despised and humiliated before all the people. And then in verses 4 to 7, God explains what a priest was supposed to do. And it wasn't just about offering sacrifices, it was actually about teaching. Verse 5, they were to bring life and peace to the people, to lead the people into loving, right, covenant relationship with God. How did they do that? By, by teaching God's word. Look, look at what it says in verses 6 and 7 about, about Levi, the first priest. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. Teaching. Have have these priests been living up to their high calling? No, not even close. Verse 8 says they've turned from God's way and they've caused others to stumble too. That's the worst part. When the people brought their dodgy sacrifices, instead of the priest saying, hey, let me, let me explain to you how great God is and, and, and how we should approach him, they just went, yeah, sure, yep, bring him in, yep, whatever. But that was back then, right? What about now? I mean, we don't have a temple and priests anymore, but we do have people in our church who lead and teach. And if you are a leader of some kind here at Riverbank, uh, whether that be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a staff worker or a service leader or a musician or a growth group leader or a Sunday school leader or a youth leader or, or any other type of leader you can think of, then you need to hear this. I need to hear this. What makes a good leader? It starts in here. Verse 5, reverence for God, standing in awe of God's name. Leaders, that, that's more important than anything else, that, that we would have a growing, deepening relationship with God, growing in our reverence for His sin-hating holiness, growing in our awe of His incredible covenant love. That's where good leadership starts. And then, and then we need to share that with others. We, we need to come, on, come to church on Sunday and, and, and we need people on this stage who will lead us into the presence of our great God so that, so that they'll help us to give Him the worship He deserves. We're, we're only going to have a big vision of God as a church if our leaders have a big vision of God. We're only going to give God our best if our leaders model what that looks like in their own lives through service and sacrifice. And then in the midst of a, of a me-first society, we need these leaders to have the courage to say, it's, it's actually not all about you. Do you want a good life? Then you need an enormous God. 
who deserves every minute of your day, every dollar in your bank, every corner of your heart. We need leaders who won't just pat us on the back and say, that's all good when we bring dodgy worship. They're as useless as a smoke alarm without batteries. And leaders, this, this is a high calling, isn't it? I feel that. None of us can do it perfectly. That's why we need a great high priest. The messenger of the Lord Almighty. Someone who loves God with all his heart. Teaches others to do the same and turns them from their sins. Can you, can you think of who that might be? Jesus is the reason why we don't have Old Testament priests anymore because he's fulfilled their role perfectly, hasn't he? I mean, he, he worships God perfectly. Uh, he, he confronts the unrepentant, especially the religious leaders and hypocrites. He's gentle with the weary strugglers. Uh, he leads all of us to the truth to life and peace with God. And it's really as we, as we follow and love that great high priest more, that Riverbank will become a kingdom of priests. That's actually the language that the Bible uses for the church in 1 Peter 2, that, that we're actually all priests. Not just the leaders here, but all of us. Priests to the world with the job of leading others to God. Uh, someone described it to me as if we are the world's worship leaders. As, as we sing praises to God, as we give Him our best, as we evangelize, we show the world His greatness and we invite them to join us in worshiping Him. Okay, we began with the story of two churches, didn't we? One was big and impressive, and it was spiritually dead inside. And another, it looked a bit smaller and a bit more underwhelming, but the people loved God with all their hearts. And I wonder which church Riverbank is more like. I wonder what type of Christian you are. If you are a Christian here today, Reflect on how you're going in serving and worshipping God and giving Him your best. That might give you an insight into your heart. Perhaps the way in which you love others and the way you use your time, the way you serve the church and the wider community, it, it can show you where your heart's at. It's important to think about how we can give God our best, but... I think this passage also calls us to go deeper than that. This is where I want to end. It really, doesn't it, calls us to cry out to the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Yeah? That's the, that's the longing I get as I read this passage. Oh, Lord, help me. Change me. Show me more and more your greatness and your glory, your beauty, so that we are convinced you're the best. Because then we won't be able to help but offer you our best. Because we, we spend time on the things we love, don't we? We don't even have to try. We spend money on the things we love. We try hard for the things we love. That's why we'll only offer God our best if we're convinced He is the best. 
I, I can't stand up here today and just nag us into worshipping God wholeheartedly. I can't just say, worship more, worship better. And if, you, if you're not a Christian here today, we're so glad you're here. And I, I want you to know that becoming a Christian isn't going to be about just doing certain religious things and ticking some boxes. Because true worship, it actually grows out of hearts that love God. Hearts that appreciate who He is and what He's done for us in Jesus. And you know, that's why we sing songs with words. That's why we study the Bible in our growth groups and have long sermons, hopefully not too boring. That's why we need leaders who love God and help us to love Him. You know, the, the Sherpas in Nepal, um, they don't have to tell people to say, wow, when they get to the peak of Mount Everest. Their job is just to lead people up the mountain to see the view for themselves. They'll, they'll say, wow. And Riverbank, we need to see the breathtaking view of God's great love and then we won't be able to help ourselves. Praise will fly from our lips and it will transform our lives. True worshippers offer God their best because they are convinced that God is the best. Let's, let's pray that that would be true of us. Will you, will you pray with me now? Lord Almighty, great King, we pray that Riverbank would be a church that worships you wholeheartedly and gives you our best. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Not because we're forced to, but because we're convinced that you're the best. Please grow that conviction in us. Please give us leaders who help us to see your greatness displayed in the beautiful face of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our great high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who leads us every day into your presence, into a life of peace and love. Lord, please warm our hearts with these beautiful truths. Convince us that there is no one greater in all the earth. And as we stare at the breathtaking view of your greatness, may we be unable to do anything other than worship you. May praise for you fly from our lips and transform our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.